The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible or just listen as God's word is read aloud. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. Oh. So a couple of things. First of all, um, Betsy was noticing that the appropriate garb for the, the service today was a blue print. <clears throat> Almost all of the band has blue print on. She commended me on getting the memo. So that was good. Second is, uh, for those of you who are not watching the women's finals, I don't know the score. I don't want to know the score. Uh, but thank you for being here and not going and watching the finals. All right. So we're in, the, in this five-week survey of the covenants as they unfold in Scripture. And of necessity, we are spending all this time in the Old Testament. Today will be the fourth week, and we haven't gotten out of the book of Genesis yet. It's going to be a long trip. No, that's not true. We're going to get all the way through Deuteronomy today as we look at the covenant uh, with Moses. Now, you may be thinking today and over these last weeks, what is it that this covenant stuff has to do with us? We're followers of Jesus, and he's revealed in the New Testament. What is all this covenant stuff, all this focus on the covenants? from the Old Testament. And each week, Todd and Daniel have tried to help you understand what each of those covenants have to do with us as followers of Jesus. And I'm going to try to do the same thing today. Daniel started by looking at the covenant with Adam. That's sometimes called the covenant of grace. Indeed, all of this covenant can be talked about as being under this big overarching covenant of grace. And in that sermon, he reminded us that the covenant of grace tells us who God is. He is the one who moves toward us, who we are that we are supplied with all we need and we obey in response to that and who Jesus is and 
He's the one who paid the price to keep the covenant. The next week he dug into the covenant with Noah, where we consider, he considered various restorations, man to God, man to man, now into eternity. And of course, the ultimate restoration is through Jesus. And then last week, Todd looked at the covenant with Abraham. He took us through that great covenant-cutting ceremony in which God himself went between the pieces of the animals. First, stating that he, God, would fall under the curse if he did not keep the covenant. That's stunning. But even more stunning was the fact that he did not make Abraham go through the pieces. He went through the pieces for Abraham. Saying basically that Abraham, if you and your descendants do not keep the covenant, I will bear the curse. And he did through Jesus. The covenants, though they are all in the Old Testament, are critically important for us to understand as followers of Jesus. And today, as we look at the covenant with Moses, we're going to look at some background stuff, where it's recorded, how it was inaugurated, and, and we're going to briefly summarize its content. I promise I won't tell you everything that's in it. Then I'm going to reflect a little bit on what the covenant means for us today, and I'm going to leave you three words. Personality, freedom, and love. Now, before we reflect on what the covenant of Moses means for us today, Let's look a little bit more deeply at the covenant himself as it unfolds in Scripture. It's actually recorded in two places. First, beginning where we just read today, Exodus 19 through 24. And then it's also recorded basically the entire book of Deuteronomy. The entire book of Deuteronomy is actually in the form of a covenant document of the ancient Near East. And we'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. But to try to keep up with everything that's going on in these first five books, let me give you a 60-second overview of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So in Genesis, we have the creation. And then soon after that, we have the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, and the covenant with Abraham, all within the book of Genesis. Then in Exodus, God calls and delivers Israel from Egypt. And there he makes the covenant with Moses. Given to Moses on Mount Sinai, the people agree to follow the covenant. Ultimately, of course, they don't. Uh, really rather quickly they don't if you read that. It's like the next chapter. They Actually, Moses isn't off the mountain yet and they've already messed up. But anyway, be that as it may, ultimately by God's leading, they wander in the wilderness. And then there's Leviticus. Leviticus is just details of the law. Case law, if you will. Numbers gives you a history of the wanderings of the Israelites through uh, the, the wilderness. And then we come to Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is now 40 years later the first generation who came out of Egypt has actually died. Israel's at the doorstep of the promised land. God has promised, God has told Moses that he will not enter the promised land, but the people will. So then Moses recounts the covenant once again. So this covenant with Moses is really presented in two places at Exodus, at the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, and in Deuteronomy at the end. And there's details spread throughout Leviticus as well. Just as with the covenant with Abraham, there was this great ceremony. There are actually two ceremonies of the covenant of Moses, both one at the beginning and one at the end, uh, or sorry, one at the establishment and one at the reestablishment of the, the covenant. And, and honestly, I, I don't think they're quite as dramatic. I, I have to tell you that the cutting of the covenant with Abraham is my favorite story in all of Scripture. I mean, I, I just I got chill bumps when I was just reviewing it a few minutes ago. I mean, I, that is really my favorite. But these are pretty cool. All right. In Exodus 19 through 24, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. Now, of course, just to be confusing, it's sometimes called Mount Horeb. But, you know, you have to keep up with all that. 
So at Mount Sinai, he's given the Ten Commandments, which we read today. Now, the rest of the book of Exodus 19, then on through chapter 23, is called the Book of the Covenant. It's basically case law based on the Ten Commandments, what to do in certain situations, examples of specific application of the Ten Commandments. And it ends with this glorious covenant sealing ceremony found in Exodus 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. What a fabulous thing that must have been. Just stunning to be there. Here the blood of the covenant is shed to seal the covenant. And the people accept the blessings and the curses that were read to them by Moses. Again, they don't do so great. You know, they have to wander a while, you know. So then we get to another ceremony. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, actually it takes place in Joshua. Moses tells Joshua, who will succeed him, that after they arrive in the promised land, they are to set up an altar of uncut stones and offer burnt offerings to the Lord. And in Deuteronomy 27, we read, Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the, world, to the Lord, the works of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. And then this goes on for and on and on. As Joshua is commanded to read the book of the law, And the people respond, amen to the curses and amen to the blessings. This actually takes place in Joshua 8, verses 30 and 33. Now, when it says that these shall stand on Mount Ebal, it means the tribes. So you're talking about tens or hundreds of thousands of people on this mountain and tens or hundreds of thousands of people on this mountain and the the Levites in the middle reading the book of the law and these people go, amen. And then they read the curses. And these people say, amen. What a spectacular ceremony that must have been. It's just amazing. God God is so serious about these covenants that the institution of these covenants are associated with ceremonies that are are mind-boggling and breathtaking. So now the content of the covenant with Moses. It's the law. We all know that. The most succinct and direct statement of the law is found in the Ten Commandments. We read in Exodus 20. They're also found in Deuteronomy 5. But as I mentioned today, there's also case law. Case law is composed of this application of the law in certain situations. It's not going to be exhaustive. Uh, It's exemplary. It gives examples of how the Ten Commandments would be applied. What to do in this case and that case. 
I've said it's already found, as I've already said, it's found in Exodus 20 through 23. It's also found in the entire book of Leviticus and much of Deuteronomy. And much of this case law is given because the Israelites, now think about this, in their next generation are going to move from being a wandering people to be a stable, fixed, agrarian, permanent society. What's going to happen as they interact with one another is going to be altogether different. They're going to own land. They're going to have different stuff. They will no longer be pilgrims. They'll no longer be traveling with the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be at the tabernacle and later the temple. And so this case law gives them instructions about moral living, how they should live, legal instructions about how to rule their society, and religious instructions to guide their ceremonies. Therefore, when many people look at the covenant with Moses or look at this law, they will say, they will identify three types of law. They will talk about moral law, judicial law, and ceremonial law. The idea is something like this. The moral law is our fundamental responsibility toward God. Those laws are still the norm for the people of God and the way that those who follow Jesus should seek to live. The judicial law, though, is for the nation of Israel when the nation of Israel existed. It consists of crimes punishable by the state and the penalties required of them. When the nation of Israel ceased to exist, these no longer applied to the people of God. The ceremonial law is for the worship of God in the tabernacle and later the temple. They have to do with circumcision, the festivals, the sacrifices that God has commanded. But Jesus has come and is the perfect sacrifice, so these two no longer apply to the people of God. Now these distinctions, which are commonly and sometimes almost flippantly described, are in the words of one commentator, useful in a rough and ready sort of way. But let me tell you, if you read all of the case law, it's just not at all that clear all the time what's moral law, what's judicial law, and what's ceremonial law. Scripture itself doesn't tell you. And as this same commentator said, the student of the Mosaic law must think through each statute to determine what it means, asking why God gave that statute to Israel at that time. Now, with that framework, let me give you a little bit of my view of what's in the law. And this is going to be necessarily truncated, but it's going to come out of an experience I haven't had in these last six months. Because in God's providence, even before I knew about this sermon, maybe even before Daniel thought of doing this sermon series, I decided to use this as the basis of my devotionals this year, a devotional guide based on Robert Murray Machane's reading plan, which takes you through the New Testament and Psalms twice a year and through the rest of the Bible once. All right? I have, as a result, read the entire Pentateuch in the last five months. Actually, yesterday, I got to Joshua 8. Remember that ceremony I just talked about with hundreds of thousands of people? I just read that yesterday in my devotion. So as a result, I've read this entire thing, and there's a lot of it, all right? And sometimes you're kind of going, am I ever going to get to the end of this? You know, there's a lot to it. But I wanted to talk about two things that that really struck me as I read the law. There are, there are all types of laws, as I've already said. There's moral law, there's judicial law, there's ceremonial law. But what really strikes you is how many there laws there are concerning how to treat other people, especially the poor, the alien, and the immigrant, and how to treat one another in the midst of conflict and disagreement. Just one example of many of any verses is in Deuteronomy 15, 7, which says, 
If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. Second, there are a whole lot of laws concerning blood. Wow, there are a lot of laws concerning blood. All right? How to prepare a sacrificial animal by draining the blood out of it and spreading it on the altar. How to prepare food for consumption by draining the blood out of it so it's not eaten. Because in the words of Deuteronomy 12.23, only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life. And you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Remember that. The blood is the life. The covenant of Moses then is found in Exodus Deuteronomy and Leviticus provides this additional case law. And two of the major themes, if you just read through it kind of unendingly over six months, is how to treat the poor and the alien fairly and the importance of blood. So with all that as background, I want to reflect a little bit on what the law might mean for us today. The approach of the followers of Jesus to the law given in the covenant of Moses is quite varied all right on the one end of the spectrum there will be some that say we live under grace law does not apply the fancy name for this is antinomianism anti-law for some antinomians any hint that followers of jesus are to follow the law even if we say you should do that in response to the gospel rather as a way to seek god's pleasure they say oh no no you can't talk about that that's legalism any mention of the law to a person way over on that side, smacks of legalism. Some will say, I'm not worried about the law. I just want to love God. I'm not going to worry about what the law says. I always wonder what they do with John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. We'll talk more about love and the commandments in a moment. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who believe that not only do the Old Testament laws apply in the moral area, they should apply in the legal area as well. Such people espouse a view that's called theonomy. They believe that the entire judicial law in the Old Testament should be the basis of civil law today so that culture can flourish and be structured as God designed. And while I agree that the judicial law is an excellent basis for civil law, and in fact is the basis of much of our civil law, It's evident to me from the Pentateuch that some of that law was only for the period of Israel and is not really made for us today. And it can get kind of difficult. Which which parts of the judicial law do we keep and which don't we don't? Now you can imagine there's huge debate between these extremes. And I'm not going to debate it anymore. Because I'm going to step back from that and reflect on three things that I think that the law means that I think both antinomians and theonomists would agree with. And I'm going to make observations about personality, freedom, and love. First, personalities. Here I want to observe that the law gives us insight into the personality and values of the lawgiver. Now, over the years, after our children were grown up and left the house, we had an opportunity to have four young adults live with us at various times. One was Charlie. He's back there playing guitar. Well, not right now, but he, he'll, he will be in shortly. All right. Um, although we, we do, Nanette and I do joke, we think Charlie was there, but most of the time he was just there asleep at night and we didn't see him much during the day, but we, we still enjoyed having him. Uh, two of them were actually interns here at, at Hope Chapel who eventually remarkably married each other. All right. They did not live with us at the same time. Okay. Don't worry. 
Uh, many of you know Aaron and Patrick. And the other was our future daughter-in-law, who actually lived with us for several months before they married, uh, before she married my, our son. Now, as they began to live in our homes, it didn't take them long to discover the rhythms and traditions of our family life. They discovered the law or the rules of our family. We didn't overtly state them necessarily, but for better or worse, uh, they discovered what they were. And as they lived with us, they needed to understand those rules and traditions because if they didn't, there could be conflict. And my favorite one was um, the time that um, uh, uh, Patrick came down and saw that a baseball game was on TV. Now, my wife and I love the Cubs. We love baseball. And Patrick, and if you know Patrick, and he's not here, so one of y'all tell him. He'll probably write me an email. But anyway, um, I love Patrick. But he's, he tells you what he thinks, right? And he said, I think baseball is boring and stupid. That was not a great thing to say. You know? I mean, you know, if you understand the personality and the values of the lawgiver, eh, just be a little careful what you say, all right? So, so that's kind of what I'm getting at, all right? That's kind of what I'm saying. And it's just going to be true if you go to live with anybody, okay? You're, you've got to understand that the tradition and rules of a family reflect the personalities and values of the leaders of the family. And this is true of God. And the law given in the commandment of Moses is a reflection of him and his personality as the lawgiver. So what do we discover about God's personality and values from God's revelation of God's law? Well, I've already talked about two things, his concern for the poor and the alien and the immigrant, and his concern about life and blood. What else could we briefly observe? Well, he's a jealous God. He demands that he be worshipped above all things. Of course, that bothers, that, that annoys a lot of people outside the church. Boy, that is one selfish God if he requires that you only worship him. Of course, what we know is that it's to our benefit that God is a jealous God. Because when we worship God and have him in the right place in our lives, things are right with us. And that's true of every human being. He's a holy God. Much of the Old Testament is about the sin and the sacrifices, which in and of themselves don't save the sacrifice giver, but are a reflection of the sacrifice giver's contrite heart. A heart that God tells us he loves and values. And here's the key. If the law reflects the personality and values of the lawgiver, then we should seek to value what the lawgiver values. We should seek to aid the poor and the alien. We should seek to treat others fairly. We should worship him above all things. We should take our sin seriously. Yes, it is forgiven by the work of Jesus, but it still pollutes us and hurts us in one another. We should work hard on repentance. So the law reflects the personality of the lawgiver. Second, freedom. Many people, both in and out of the church, are bothered by the supposed lack of freedom that the law implies. Just looking at the Ten Commandments makes one think that their main purpose, that the main purpose of the law is to restrict our freedom. Let's look at the Exodus 20 again. There we go. Uh, all right. You shall have no, okay, I, I thought this was going to be underlined in a couple of places. I'll just say it louder when it's underlined. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your um, neighbor. Eight of the Ten Commandments say no or not. What's God trying to do? Restrict our freedom? Let me return to an example of family living that I was talking about earlier. As parents try to develop the rules of the family by which their children should live, it's actually more freeing for them to tell their children what they cannot do rather than try to list all the things that they must, can, or may do. It would not be very freeing, and it would not be freedom, for a parent to tell a child, or to try to tell a child, everything that they must, can, or may do, because the attempt to do so would never be complete, and the incompleteness of that would be restraining and destructive of freedom. Similarly, for us in our relationship with God, a series of negative commands opens the door to an almost infinite array of things that you may do. And that is liberating and freeing. As in fact, the basis of real freedom. Which brings me to consider what freedom really means. People today often want to define freedom as the ability to do anything they want without any constraint. That is not freedom. That is anarchy. And without God, freedom will end up in anarchy. Or, maybe not in anarchy, because when one person or philosophy dominates everything and everyone else, without any constraint, freedom ends up in totalitarianism. Without God, freedom ends in anarchy or totalitarianism. But freedom in the context of the law of God is real freedom because it's the ability to do that which you want to do while avoiding a few things which are forbidden. So paradoxically then, really almost paradoxically, it's a series of negatives that creates true freedom in the law. We've talked about personality, we've talked about freedom, now let's talk about love. What does it mean to love God? Have you ever struggled with that concept? I I hope you have, because I have. I recognize that everything I have, health, knowledge, opportunity, success, wealth, everything is a gift of God. I try to be faithful to him in what I do. I try to understand through scripture what he has taught us about himself, about us as human beings and how we should live. I am overwhelmingly grateful for everything that God has done. But do I love God? What does it mean to love God? John Frame is one of my favorite theologians in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life. He has a section called Love and Law. And this starts, and he starts this section by reviewing the concept of covenant. Remember, Daniel started us out. He was talking about a covenant between a suzerain or king and his vassals or subjects. Frame summarizes it this way. A suzerain-vassal covenant followed a standard form. And there are actually, these are written and found in archaeological uh, diggings uh, excuse me, in the ancient Near East. They would start with the name of the suzerain or the king. They would usually have a historical prologue, what the suzerain has done to benefit the vassal, which could be another king or could be the people under that king. Then there are stipulations, how the vassal king and our people are to behave. In general, there are requirements of excuse, exclusive allegiance, 
which is actually sometimes called love, oddly enough. And then there will be specific laws indicating how they are to behave. They are supposed to not only be allegiant, maybe they're supposed to pay taxes or they're supposed to come if they're called for military service or whatever. And then there are sanctions. There are blessings that are rewards for obedience to the stipulations and curses which are punishments for disobedience. And then there would be a little section on administration and succession and this and that. Now, Frame asks, in the context of this covenant, what does love mean? And his answer is it means allegiance, action, and affection. I find this so incredibly helpful. What does it mean to love the infinite God, the creator of the universe, the one who is was, is, and always will be. The triune God, one in three. The mystery of mysteries. How does it mean, what does it mean to love that God, the nature of whom I can barely imagine? It means allegiance, affection, oh, sorry, action, and affection. I can get my head around that. I won't always practice perfect allegiance, action, and affection. But as I think about my life, what I am thinking, what I am doing, what I am feeling... This gives me a lens through which to examine whether those thoughts, activities, and feelings reflect the allegiance, action, and affection that God calls me to in the covenant. And the actions to which we are called in the covenant are found in the covenant of Moses in the law. Remember John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. This isn't earning love by obeying the commandments. This is just a way to measure how are you doing in loving God? How well are you obeying His commandments? I think this is what the law, the covenant of Moses means for us today. A window into God's personality. True freedom. And a way to understand what it means to love God. Now as I conclude, I'm going to leave you with a fourth word blood. As I said at the beginning, many followers of Jesus think all of this covenant stuff is just a lot of Old Testament theological minutia and not really relevant for them. I'm going to be somewhat bold here and tell you that I don't think Jesus would agree with that. And I'm going to tell you why. Remember that I told you that a lot of the covenant of Moses has to do with blood. God told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 12 that the life is in the blood. In Leviticus 17, he says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so as we turn to the Last Supper, we read Jesus' words. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus describes the blood that he is about to shed in his death, represented by the wine and the cup he held, and by this juice that we'll consume shortly as the blood of the covenant, the blood that makes atonement for many. We are so prone to think that God accepts us because of how good we are, or how well we have done this or that, or how much we have given up for him, And we must completely and utterly understand that we are not worthy to come before God because of anything we have done. Nothing at all. Our salvation, Ephesians 2.8, is a gift. That means 
a gift. That is what all this covenant stuff has to do with us. For a follower of Jesus, the covenant of Moses is not theological minutiae. It is the key to understanding the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf as he took our place enduring the curses of the covenant so that we may enjoy the blessings of that same covenant both now and forevermore. Amen.